Philippians going to bring to us, and it's on the handout that you should have had as you came in from Acts chapter 9. taken from Acts chapter 9 verses 1 to 22. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple called Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias. Come and place his hand place his hand on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hand on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised Lazarus in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus 
by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Take your seats, and uh, if you have those handouts in front of you, that's going to be really helpful. We're continuing in our series, uh, uh, Knowing Him and Making Him Known. Uh, In our all-age service uh, later on, we're doing this uh, new style of all-age, which is really exciting. Um, We don't have a full sermon, so again, this is a a bonus sermon just for you uh, this morning. And we're thinking around the theme of telling our story. How do we tell our story of what God has done in our lives, of how we came to know Jesus and how therefore we are called to make him known. And uh, in the Bible, we have a number of stories of people whose lives were changed by an encounter with Jesus Christ. And perhaps there's no more dramatic story, no more significant story than the story of this man, Saul, who became Paul. This passage is uh, known, if you have a Bible with titles on it, it says Saul's conversion, Saul's conversion. Now, there's, a, there's an interesting word. Uh, in, in rugby, if you score a try, which is worth five points, you then have the opportunity to have a conversion, which is worth two points, a converted try. Uh, back home in, in Wales, there was uh, many years ago, there was a particularly passionate uh, Welsh con- commentator. And as one of the Welsh players kicked one of these amazing conversions from about 50 metres to gain an extra two points for, for Wales, in his excitement, he, he cried out, that's the best conversion since St. Paul on the road to Damascus. Now, probably if you said that today, people wouldn't have a clue what you're on about and you'd probably be arrested anyway. Today, conversion is a dirty word. To many, it implies brainwashing. It implies being forced into a new way of thinking. It means having a different way of behaving forced upon us. In the Bible, conversion is always voluntary. It is used of people who came to believe in Jesus as as their Messiah from a background of Jewish belief. And the change was so radical that it was this word conversion came to be used. A conversion, a significant change that, well, to use the rugby analogy, added value to their life. And that turning was so significant that they coined this phrase, conversion. But whenever that word is used in the Bible, it's always spoken of as a choice made by that person. It was never something that was forced upon people, that was used as a way of manipulating people. It was always voluntary. And can I just say that? When we speak about conversion in a church context, we are always speaking about something that is voluntary, something that people choose in response to the evidence that is before them. Conversion is a volitional volitional turning around of someone's life. And the Bible provides us with many examples of this, of whom Saul is the greatest. And so the question I want to pose this morning, both for us to think about for ourselves, but also to think about in terms of how we might make Jesus known, is what does it mean to be converted in the true sense of the word, in the biblical sense of the word? What does it mean to be converted? Well, here are a couple of pointers to what it means from 
the story of Saul. Firstly, conversion changes our minds. Remember, of course, Saul was a, could be described as a religious terrorist. He was a zealous, an extremist, a man who was passionate about his beliefs. But like all extremists, deep inside, he was a deeply unhappy man. By the way, you can have all sorts of extremists. Yes, you can have religious extremists, but you can also have political extremists. You can have atheistic extremists. You can have scientific extremists. Extremism is not limited to any one type of person. But Paul was an extremist in the sense that he was so passionate about what he believed that he thought nothing of killing people who disagreed with him. You see, Saul thought he knew what God was like. And the one thing he knew about God was that God was so holy that the idea of him becoming a human being was inconceivable. How could that be? That would be like having two gods, was Saul's way of thinking. It was unthinkable. The idea that a holy God would become a man was unthinkable. And the idea that he would die on behalf of his people and in so doing offer forgiveness once and for all for human sin was just inconceivable in Paul's way of thinking. And Saul moves from that point of view to a completely different view in such a dramatic way that it's described as a conversion. A conversion of his mind. In this amazing incident on the road to Damascus, he is confronted by a God who turns his belief system upside down. A God whose true holiness and true glory blinds him physically, but also causes him to have his mind converted. Do you notice his response in verse 5? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Who are you, Lord? This is the greatest theologian who ever lived. This is this man who'd been brought up in this religious system, who thought he knew it all, and yet here he is saying, I don't even understand who you are anymore, God. Who are you, Lord? Something must have happened to cause him to ask that question that he thought he knew the answer to. Who are you, Lord? And as he sits there on his backside at the side of the road, rubbing his eyes in disbelief, he begins to realize that his mind is being changed about who this Jesus really is. I wonder if we've ever answered that question in our own lives. Who are you, Lord? I wonder if we've ever reached that point of realizing that actually we've got it wrong and we need to have our minds converted. Now, we all have different experiences. We all have different stories of how we found Christ. I grew up in a, a Christian home where strict observance of the Sabbath was very important. And so church going was fundamental to my life. I even read the Bible. But as a teenager, I began to ask those questions, those difficult questions about faith. But I only asked them to myself because I couldn't, I just couldn't feel comfortable in challenging the belief system in which I'd grown up. 
And to be honest, there was a phase as a teenager where I couldn't wait to be old enough not to have to go to church anymore. But I was a conformer, not a rebel, and so I just gritted my teeth and put up with it. But then something happened. When I was uh, 16 years old, we had a special series of, of, of sermons around Easter about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, the guy who gave them was called Rob Parsons. He's well known now as the uh, leader of Care for the Family. In those days, he was a, a practicing solicitor in Cardiff, and in his spare time, he would go around preaching in churches. And Rob Parsons came and did a series on the resurrection of Christ. And he approached it as a solicitor, sifting through the evidence. And I'd never heard anything like it. I'd never heard a man come and actually say, this faith is credible. This event is a historical event. This is not just a story. This is something that happened and something that changed. And over those through three weeks, I was converted. And it started with the conversion of my mind from thinking this was some kind of fairy story, this kind of thing that we could kind of was nice for children, but not really for sensible adults. Suddenly, I began to see, yes, yes, this happened. And my mind was changed. And as my mind was changed, my skepticism was challenged. And my commitment level to the Christian faith went through the roof. And those three weeks were critical to my conversion experience as I came to believe that my mind could be changed on issues and that that was the door that opened the pathway to really knowing the Lord Jesus Christ at work in my life. Conversion changes our minds. Secondly, conversion interrupts our plans. Saul was a man who loved it when a plan came together. He'd obviously gone to some lengths to make sure that this happened. The first two verses tell us he went to the high priest. He had letters of authority. He prepared prison places for them. He planned this well in advance. He wanted to make sure he had all the right paperwork, all the right places planned. Paul was a planner. He spent his life getting the best education, building up his reputation, climbing the career of, of, of religion. And now here is this man who thought he was serving God by engaging in planned religious persecution, now realizes his plans were simply the product of an unhappy man. Notice verse 15. God says, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. That certainly wasn't Saul's plan. Saul's plan was the complete opposite. Saul hated Gentiles. Saul hated Jesus. He hated the gospel. And yet here he is now, verse 15, God's chosen instrument to carry my name before the people he hated and their kings and people and before the people of Israel. God takes Saul's feeble plans and by his intervention in his life interrupts them and reshapes them. Now for many of us that's a scary idea. A God who interrupts plans and calls us to something different 
is not the sort of God we perhaps would naturally want. And yet, the changing of our plans is fundamental to the conversion that process that we go through. If our minds are changed about who God is and what he wants to do in our lives, then surely we would expect him not just to do what we want to do anymore, but what he wants to do. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 is one of those verses that's become a kind of very inspiring quote. Says this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Now we need care with that verse because it was actually written at one of the lowest points in Israel's history. A time when the entire nation, north and south, was crumbling because of the recklessness of the leaders and the people. There are a few high spots in the book of Jeremiah, but this is one of them. But the key thing about those plans are that those plans come from God. They have their origin in God. And they were offered as a way of lifting up people who were broken and giving them a new vision of the future. Plans to prosper, not to harm you. Not material prosperity, but prosper as people because these people would be found in a right relationship with God. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Not because these people uh, thought that they could do it themselves, but because those, these plans are based on what God has done and the hope of what he's going to do again in the future. God's plans for us are far bigger than we can imagine. They will prosper us as people. They will give us a hope and a future. Therefore, if conversion involves interrupting our plans and reshaping our plans, as long as we keep focused on God, then that need not be all scary. Because we can have this confidence that God's plans for us are far bigger than we can imagine and are rooted in his promises and his presence. And Saul discovered that. Saul's great plans to persecute the church are turned upside down, and instead he becomes the chosen instrument, the servant of the church. And finally, conversion leads us into a new life. Saul was no fool. He'd obviously thought about this question of the change that would happen in his life. He was baptized, verse 18, and of course, as we've said many, many times, baptism in the New Testament is a symbol of new life, new life. As Saul is baptized, it was a transformative, converting act for Paul. This religious terrorist, this pious, devout religious man is being baptized into a new identity, a new life. I think what's interesting is he's baptized by Ananias, just an ordinary, humble Christian, an ordinary follower of Jesus. What a humiliating climb down that must have been for this man who thought he was in the, uh, the, the kind of upper echelons of religion. But it was a powerful symbol of a transformed life. Saul was saying, I have buried my own plans. And I am being raised to God's plans. 
Saul was saying, I'm laying aside, I'm burying my own thoughts, and I'm coming alive to God's thoughts. Saul was saying, I'm laying down my old life, my, my, I'm burying my old life, and I'm coming alive to a new life. Saul's conversion involved his recognition that the life he was going to live now was a new one. The old was gone, the new had come, and that was based on what Jesus did as Son of God and Lord of all. And this new life that we can receive this morning is based on the same truth. It's based on what Jesus did on the cross in saving us from our sins and in giving us a fresh start. But what he also demonstrates in his resurrection, that he comes to bring new life. So as we think about this this morning, this word conversion, have you been converted in the true sense of the word? Have you reached that point of recognizing that there are two ways to live and there is a choice to make? That God reveals himself to us, maybe not as dramatically as he did to Saul on the road to Damascus, but God reveals himself to us and our only response to that is to have our minds changed, a recognition that that will interrupt our plans, but also an awareness that that leads us into a new life. Is that part of your story? Whether it was a dramatic one-off event or whether it was a gradual process, is that your story this morning? Is God involved in your story, the story of your life? Have you known his work in you? His work of change, his work of reshaping, his work of leading you into a new life. Let's pause for a moment and pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that your plans for us are so much greater than we can imagine. And just in the quietness, we pause and we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would make yourself known to us through your word this morning. Draw us into that relationship with you where we can have confidence in your plans for us, where we can experience the new life that you want us to know. Reveal yourself to us this morning, we pray. Lord, we are very conscious of what is going on in the world at the moment. And uh, we believe that you have an ultimate plan for this world, which is to bring justice, to bring peace, to bring reconciliation. And yet we live in a broken, fallen world where the evidence points in other directions. And so, Lord, we pray again, we cry out to you, for justice, for peace, for reconciliation. We pray for that in Ukraine. We pray for that in the Middle East. God, would you raise up men and women who can be your chosen instruments to bring justice, peace, and reconciliation as a pointer to what you are ultimately going to do in this world? Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for our own community. 
And we pray, Lord, for our our mission to reach out to this community, both in our personal conversations and in our conversation as a church. Lord, give us confidence in your word, we pray. Give us courage to speak for you as the opportunities arise and help us to keep serving you with practical acts that open doors to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for Tim and we pray, Lord, that you would give him a refreshing week this week. We pray that in the the busyness of ministry, in all the challenges of leadership, both within the church here at St. John's and within the wider Church of England, that during this week you might speak to him, that you might reveal yourself to him afresh through your word, that you might refresh him and bring him back to us next week with a clearer vision of who you are and what you want to do amongst us. And we bring all these prayers to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Shall we stand?